morning. Open with me to Luke chapter 15. You've got your Bible, maybe get your notebook out and let's take some time and look at some snapshots in Luke and specifically from Luke chapter 15. And I want to remind you of sort of the overall theme or the meta-narrative, if you will, uh, of the book of Luke as Mark's been approaching it in this particular season. And that is that Jesus is turning things around. Uh, You know this, you've sort of heard this, I'm sure, that in the Gospels and in Luke especially, what we learn, what we notice, it's really interesting, is it's not the way you think it is. It's not necessarily the way it appears to be. In in other words, uh, the way to be great is how? To become a servant of all. So the way up is down. If you want to gain, what do you do? Lose. If you want to go in and up, you you have to go down and and out in a sense. It's just sort of turned around. And and that's what's happening oftentimes. God is reversing the world order, the thinking of the days, turning things around, or in some cases even upside down perhaps as we'll see today. And that is the way to actually come in is to realize, of course, you're outside. And in Luke, we're seeing this. We saw this a few weeks ago when Mark introduces the parables that outsiders have become insiders. The have-nots actually have, and those who apparently have, have not. It's a turning around of things. It's a reversal of the order of things. And that's what Jesus is doing. And in so doing, here's what he's doing. Jesus is setting things right. And by the way, that's the kingdom. The kingdom of God is setting things right. Dr. Capes last week talked about eschatology and God's full plan of redemption, that he's not just going to rip up this planet and throw it away. He's going to redeem his creation. He's going to set things right. And not just in our spiritual lives, not, not just in the spirit person that we are, but, but that, that's why, you see, we're going to have a resurrected sheet and hover around space as an immaterial being, right? You don't read that in the Bible. In fact, what we have is we have a resurrected, redeemed body. It's a physical aspect to God's redemption. And it's a part of God's plan to make things right or to set things in order, or to turn things around and make it right. So today what I want you to do is join me, as I mentioned, Luke chapter 15, where we find three parables. Three parables. Which means we could make a five-week series or a 15-week series because we've got an entire chapter's worth of material. We could go for months on these three parables alone. Two of them you'll know, the third you'll know very well. It's the lost sheep. It's the lost coin, and then it's a lost son. What do we call him? The prodigal son. The prodigal son. Three parables. Now, why don't you just do those one at a time? Well, it's interesting if what we know about parables to be true is true, and we know it is because Mark taught us this some weeks ago, that a parable is a simple story to teach a deeper truth spiritually. It's to show something 
that we may not see. It's to lay alongside is really the technical definition of a parable. It means to lay something alongside to help us see and understand. In other words, the idea is is that a parable makes the profound simple so that a child could see and understand. He can relate to it. She can understand it, get their mind around it. It sort of touches their world. It's rooted in their context and they can understand by way of story. Oh, that's what Jesus is telling me. That's what this means. By the way, there's another use of the parable. We learned this from the parable of the sower. Right in the middle of the parable of the sower is a sort of an explanation, usually, if not always, left out of a sermon on the sower. But that's a mistake because in the middle of that parable, what Jesus is saying is parables not only make profound things simple, parables make simple things profound. In fact, the simplicity is so profound Some people walk right past it. They just miss it all together. They don't get it. They can't connect to it. It doesn't ring a bell. Do you know there's a group of people, we'll see them again today, who sort of fit the description of those who missed the glorious and profound simplicity of the gospel. And so we come to these three parables today. And what we're going to see today is what it meant to them then. That's one of the keys to understanding What did it mean? How did they take it? What did they understand Jesus to be saying? And we want to, of course, know how does it fit in the context. So today, for today, we're not just going to take one or two or even three of these parables, lift them out of context and talk about what that particular parable means because each of those parables, in that order, in the context of Luke chapter 15, is very intentional, I think we'll see. And the other question we want to always ask about a parable is, what's the point? What's the point of the parable? Now, that's not to say, although I did read a book that said every parable has one and only one point. I think that's stretching it a bit. I think there are many lessons in a parable. I think there are some other points to be made, oftentimes depending on your perspective, who you are in the story or who you identify with or who you relate to, may help you discover a point that you would take away and say, boy, that point really spoke to me. So so I'm not limiting this to a point, but what we want to know and understand is Jesus is telling a story, and the story has a moral. You know, when we were kids, we learned what's the moral of the story, the, the point. So we want to be careful when we go to the parables, and especially these three, uh, that we don't miss the forest for the trees. We've got to push back just a little bit, and we've got to get the perspective of the whole so that we can better understand how the pieces and parts, or in England, the bits, fit together. So today what I want to do is keep us at arm's length, although I'm dying to go deep in every one of these parables. I think the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son, or the loving father, however you want to term the third parable, is so wonderful. In fact, I've taught consistently to graduates when I've been invited to do these graduate banquets that there are in that particular parable seven lessons to learn before leaving home. But I can't do it today (laughs) because we'll get lost right down in the details of it. We will find ourselves going, oh my goodness, this parable about this prodigal is amazing. Look at this guy. Wait, hold on. This guy has a place in the context of Luke chapter 15. And for today, I want us to stay on that particular level. So here's our roadmap. 
we're going to talk today about the people because we have to set this in context. We have to understand who's listening or who's in focus in this particular snapshot. And there are two kinds for sure, probably, as we'll see a third. Then we'll walk through the parables and we'll try to walk quickly so that we can get all three of them on the table and then we'll ask ourselves, so what's the point? Now I do want to make this point with a little p. When Jesus tells a story for a point, that's an important point. When Jesus tells two stories to make the same point, that's an important point. What do you suppose it means when Jesus tells one, two, three stories to make the same point? Is that an important point? You bet. It's three. And Jesus tells three parables in the context of Luke chapter 15, and we're going to try to get through them all, to discern what's the larger, greater meta-narrative here. What's the big point we want to be sure to take home from this? So here we go. Let's jump in into the people and make sure we understand. By now, surely you found Luke chapter 15, but just in case you can't see it on your little phone, I got it on this big one here. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. How does it make you feel? Sinners and tax collectors are coming to Jesus. That's either good or bad, depending on your perspective, your worldview, where you're coming from. Sinners and tax collectors are not people to have hanging around if you're an upstanding citizen, a member of the ruling council, a priest, or a Pharisee, or a scribe. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Grinding to each other, but apparently loud enough for the people around them and our Lord to overhear their grumbling. What are they saying? This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Scandalous. How could he? Clearly, he's not who he says he is, or he wouldn't be with them, and yet he is. So let's be sure we understand the people in this conversation, first of all, are tax collectors and sinners. You know who they are? They're the lost in this story. They're the outsiders. And more than that, they're lost causes. These are people you wouldn't bother with. These are people you push aside, avoid at all costs, have nothing to do with. They're not redeemable. They're lost. Lost is a present reality. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. They're already lost. They're lost causes. Do you know any? (laughs) Maybe a few of us have been lost causes in times past like they were seen to be. They were lost. And the Pharisees, you see, uh, uh, they're the inside crowd, or found, if you will. Right? I mean, if the sinners and tax collectors are out there, and, and I'm a scribe of the Holy Word of God, or I'm a Pharisee paying attention to the law of God in its most infinite details, then they're out and I'm in. It's not the first time we've seen this. We understand this. There are two kinds of people in this parable. Those 
them, they, me. You see the distinction and a clear and stark contrast. These are not hanging out kinds of people. They're not friends. They're not associates. They're not co-workers. They have nothing whatsoever to do with each other if the insiders have any say in the matter. And what's worse, they are offended that this so-called holy man come from God to set things right is hanging out with all the wrong people. It's scandalous what he's doing. What is he doing? He's receiving sinners. That word to receive in the language of the Bible is a really grand and wonderful word of hospitality. It doesn't just mean, uh, look, we're here and we're open. If they want to come, fine. That's not what it means to receive. It's not even, hey, you can come and we'll like turn on the lights and, and we'll save you a seat. We'll have a cup of coffee and a donut for you. Not, it's not even that. By the way, did you know that in England they have Krispy Kreme donuts? That's the good news. The bad news is, when we asked for a hot donut now sign to come on, they said, what's that? So, yes, no. This word to receive doesn't mean to allow to come. This word's really powerful. What it means is to welcome them warmly. Even beyond a wave or a handshake. This word really, I mean, if we could take a little license here based on how this third parable ends in the actions of the Father, this word receives mean to give them a big old warm bear hug. Right? I mean, just put, just put your arms around and pull them close. Not like a little side hug with the pat on the shoulder, you know? This word means, come here, man, let me give you a big old hug. So what was Jesus doing? He was receiving sinners and tax collectors. He was accepting them in his presence while the Pharisees and the scribes rejected them. Jesus accepted them. While they would keep them outside forever, Jesus invited them to come in and sat them at his own table, which, as you know, because you're a member of the Biblical Literacy Club and class is a very intimate affair. It's a physical affair. It's a personal and emotional affair. It's a thing where people get together and rub shoulders and eat from the same bowl. Ooh! Yuck! That sinner just put his hands in that bowl. I'm not touching it because if I do, I myself will be defiled and unclean. Can't take that chance. So let's keep them out. Let's not invite them in. Let's definitely not fix a meal for them. Let's not invite them to the table. Let's not sit up right next to them, lean over on them, share from the same bowl, drink from the same cup. No way! And they were fired up and furious that Jesus would do such a thing. But that is exactly what Jesus did. So there are really three characters in focus. There are the outsiders. There are the insiders. Those are the lost. These are the found. And in Jesus, we find the place and the person where the lost are found. Where the lost are found. That's Jesus. So that's who we have. And now the three parables we'll walk through because there's a point Jesus is going to make in both situations, the lost and the found, the insiders and the outsiders, or as we'll see later in the third parable, the dead and the alive. Three parables. Here we go. So, 
and biblical literacy. Anytime you see a word like that, what do you got to do? So? So what? That's a connecting word. It means this parable is tied to those two verses we just read together. So, or therefore, what's it? Therefore. This is a connecting word. So he told them this parable. What man of you? What man of you? In other words, let's phrase it this way. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If you had a hundred sheep and you lost just one of them, what man of you does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Wouldn't you do that? The Pharisees and the scribes are nodding. Yes, I would do that. You say, I wouldn't do it. 99% is a good day. I mean, if I could have gotten a 99% on every test I ever took, I'd have taken it, wouldn't you? Forget the one. 99 is good. And there's risk involved in going after the one. And there's a way, uh, an expense involved in going after the one. 99 is fine. But don't be mistaken. Jesus never accused the Pharisees or the scribes as having no compassion and not caring. He just accused them of having compassion and caring about all the wrong things. Trust me. They cared about that sheep. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't any man, if he lost one out of a hundred, make an arrangement to go after the one and search for it until he finds it? Meaning it's not a casual search. This isn't just, I'll just take a walk around, see what I can see. Maybe he'll, you know, pop out of the rocks. Maybe I'll see him on the horizon grazing. It's one pitiful, puny, lost sheep probably by his own neglect vulnerable, probably do it again. I'm going to go out and find this one sheep and drag him back. He's going to do it again. Say la vie, must just, might as well just let him go. No, you wouldn't do that. Neither would they. So this is a point of connection because they cared about things, stuff, possessions. They cared about prestige. They cared about power and position, and authority. They cared deeply. Keep that thought. And when he has found it, what does he do? Kick it back home? Drag it back home? He's probably injured, perhaps, exhausted, stressed. What does he do? Lecture it to death? Wag his finger and say, look at you. You are lost. No, what's he do? He throws the sheep on his shoulder. And the idea here is his legs here, legs here, over the back, sheep's head right here. And he brings that sheep back lovingly in a caring way, carries the sheep home. And is he begrudging, angry, bitter, resentful? No, he's rejoicing. And wouldn't you? I mean, you found this lost sheep, this part of your possession, This is yours, and it's lost, and you found it, and what do you do? You bring it in rejoicing. That's what you do. And when you come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Wouldn't you? Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, that's the lost sheep, than over the ninety-nine, those are the found sheep, 
the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, right here is an opportunity to run way off in the weeds and get lost in the details. But we're going to pull ourselves back and stay on point and try to discover what it is Jesus is saying. But I will offer this, that Jesus is in no way clearing the Pharisees or the scribes. He's in no way declaring them to be righteous. No, no. What he's doing here is he's playing along. So if you want the context, I think what we could do, fairly so, is insert in there uh, the apparent righteous persons or the self-righteous persons or those who at least think they're righteous and don't see the need for repentance. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they see a need for repentance? Turn is to repent, change your mind and then your direction. Why wouldn't the Pharisees and the scribes see a need to repent? Well, they hadn't gone anywhere wrong. Hadn't lost their way. Hadn't left home. Were right where they were supposed to be. So they didn't need to repent because they were right. So Jesus is just, I think he's just saying, let's push this to the next conversation. He's not coming out initially and saying, You need to repent too. Although in Luke chapter 13, he does say, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Keep that in mind. Yet here, he lets them off the hook a little bit by saying, hey, let's just focus on this one lost sheep and the rejoicing in the shepherd having found that one. Parable two. Let's go further. So he told them this parable. We already read that. Did I just do all that without having that on the screen? Your job is to tell me when my slides don't match the conversation. Come on, Greg. Help me out, buddy. We're friends. Are we friends? Help me out. All right. Keep me on track. Now we'll get to this one, verse 8. Do you need to see the other one? Hmm. Hmm. Got it? Okay. All right. Now we can move on. My apologies. It's been a while. (laughs) Number, or verse 8. What man among you, the first one, Or what woman? Ladies? Uh, By the way, the Pharisees have stopped listening. (laughs) As if the shepherd weren't an offensive profession enough. Uh, Now we're going to talk about a woman. We've got to learn a lesson from a woman. Ah. So ladies, this is for you. What woman? By the way, I'm so happy to hear how Mark has uh, taken that on as well in talking about how God makes things right. Jesus is making things right. And uh, the role of uh, our dear sweet ladies... Uh, is certainly something that needed to be made right and still does. Don't clap. You this, Don't do that. Oh, you weren't? Never mind. <laughs> what woman, having ten silver coins, now this is ten, the number is smaller, not a hundred. If she loses one coin, if you lost a coin, would you not light a lamp? Which means we're about to search for this until the sun comes up. Would you not sweep out the house? Not a big house. Probably a dirt floor. Maybe some kind of furniture. Some Maybe rugs. I don't know. Some things. Some possessions. Something. She had something. She had ten coins. But she's willing to clean house, folks. She is taking it all out. Getting everything out of the way. As long as it takes. Whatever it takes. To find that one coin. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. By the way, both of those are in the feminine, which means this is a ladies' event. 
There you go. Saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. She lost it. The coin didn't lose itself. I mean, the sheep might have had something to do with its own lostness, but the coin is an inanimate object. They don't walk off. She lost it. And now she's searched the whole house, laid into the night to find it. And she's happy about it. There's no lecturing of the coin. There's no decision to go and trade that coin as soon as possible because it's a bad coin. No. She rejoices. And she calls her friends and neighbors. Girls, ladies, hey, come come here. I want to tell you something. I lost this coin earlier. I just pulled my hair out. I've looked everywhere. And finally I found it. Look, here it is. Here, the one out of ten. Now, would you not have taken a 90 on every test you ever took if you could have taken a 90? 90% is not bad. But not this lady. She wants that which is lost. And having found it, she rejoices. And I tell you, just so, verse 10 says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One out of a hundred, one out of ten. Would it be true if it were one out of 150? If you apply the principle, there's rejoicing in heaven over just one. Would it be one if it were one out of 100,000? One out of a million? One out of a billion? Does, does one person turning to Christ and coming to God by faith and grace and salvation cause a banquet in heaven? The party with your name on it. It's a, Love to share the gospel when I have a chance to share the gospel and someone comes to a faith decision. It's fun to say after the amen, I want to tell you what's happening in heaven right now. According to God's word, they're throwing a party in your honor and your name's on the banner. You're the guest of honor. Now, you, you'll get there, but not today. Don't rush things. But I want you to know there's joy and rejoicing in the Father's heart and all of heaven before the angels of God because you just turned to Jesus for salvation. And it is a cause and a reason to celebrate. Two parables so far, plenty of subpoints, but there is one driving point I don't want you to miss. But before we roll it out, let's go to the third parable. Slightly different. And he said in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. Now, if you aren't careful, you'll say, what was his name? What is his address? How old was he? Right? But don't do that to a parable. Because parables aren't meant to be analyzed in that way. What we're looking for here is the moral of the story. So there was a man. He's just a man. And he had two sons. How many sons did he have, class? He had two sons. So it's really not the story of the prodigal son or the lost son, is it? Two sons. Uh, By the way, how many people are in our snapshot from verses 1 and 2? How many groups or kinds of people? One? Two. The lost? The found? The outsiders, the insiders. There was a man. He had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property. See, I changed the tone there because I didn't want you to think this was a polite request. This is a highly offensive request. You know this. Give me the share of property that's coming to me. So he's not asking for something he doesn't deserve. He deserves it. He's the younger of two sons. He gets one-third. The older son gets two-thirds. That's the way it works. He's entitled to it. It is coming to him. The problem is, generally speaking, you would say, go ahead and enjoy it when you die. 
It's coming to me. What he's saying is, is, hey, could you just go ahead and like, can we just pretend you're dead? And can I go ahead and get my third of the estate now? That's a pretty tough request. What did dad do? He divided his property between them. By the way, if we wanted to dive deep into the original language, the Greek New Testament here, we would notice that in the English, that word property is listed twice, but the word behind that word property is a different word. In the first case, you see us, I believe, is stuff. It's, a, it's property. It's stuff. It's things. The other word divided his property is the word bion or bios, which those of you who have had biology know that's the word for life. Now, it's not specifically death in this case, but what he's saying is, is as if you were dead, I want your livelihood or the source of your living. I, I want what's coming to me that sustained you. I want it. So this is a really grossly offensive request. And by the way, word of this would have gotten out. I want you to remember that. This is, not, this is no longer just an intimate family disagreement. This is going to go viral. But this second son has been so rude as to ask for his father's life. Not many days later, the younger son, he's kind of in a hurry <laughs> to get wherever he's going, which I guess in this case was just where he wasn't. <laughs> get away. By the way, this is how you get lost. Uh, you, you may go where you're going on purpose. You may be in a hurry to get there. You may know exactly where you're going. doesn't mean you're not lost because lost just means away. It means you're not where you're supposed to be. He's supposed to be with the father in the father's house in an intimate relationship with his father. He's chosen to take his father's life and run off with it. And to go somewhere, wherever there is. But I can tell you where there is. It's lost. Keep that in mind. You could know exactly where you are. Exactly where you are. You could be where you are on purpose. And you could be having a wonderful time where you are. Doesn't mean you're not lost. Just means you're not where you're supposed to be. If you're supposed to be in a relationship with God for which you were created. So he runs off. To a far country. That's not good. If you're a Jewish son, you don't go off to a far country. And there he squandered or scattered his property. Whose property? Well, technically his. Really his father's. It's poor stewardship. But he squandered in reckless living. He wasted what he had. By the way, you know the Greek word sozo means to save. This word is a-sozo. What does a mean in the language of the Bible? It's the opposite. It's a negating. So he's, he didn't save anything. He wasted it all. I mean, this guy's got nothing left. He's had a really good time. Keep in mind, the seeds or the consequences are they're on their way. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he was not prepared. Because he'd given everything away, lost it all in reckless, frivolous, wasteful living. That's what prodigal means, by the way. A severe famine arose and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country. So now he's in a foreign country. Nothing wrong with a foreign country, by the way. Unless, of course, you're not supposed to be there. Hello? And he's attached himself now, hired himself to a citizen of that country... 
who sent him into his fields to do of all things feed the pigs. You know enough about the scriptures, Judaism, the law to know you don't hang around pigs. You don't talk to them. You don't associate with them. You don't feed them. You definitely don't get down in the pig pen and share a meal with them. That's gross. I got to be honest. I, I looked for a picture of a pig pen to, to put one up here because you know everybody talks about how gross. Oh, pig slop. Ooh. Because what the young son's doing is he's, he's wanting to eat pig food. He's that hungry. He's that desperate. He's longing to slop it up with the hogs. But when I saw some pictures, I had flashbacks and had all this stress come, anxiety come back because when I was a kid, we had pigs. And let me just tell you, Wilbur was not one of them. These things are gross. And here is this Jewish boy, son of a wealthy landowning, positioned, entitled, perhaps father, down in the pig pen. Does he belong there? No. Is it beneath his character? Yes. Should he be there? No. What's he doing there? Oops. Just stumbled in. Well, yes and no. He sort of walked himself right in because he walked away from where he was supposed to be to get to where he wanted to be. The end of that journey was a pig pen. There he is. He's in the pig pen. He's begging, can I have some pig food? No one gave him anything. And finally, he has an aha moment, a moment of truth, a coming to himself. It's an existential, what am I doing here? And who am I after all? He came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants, because that's what he had become in a foreign land to a foreign landowner, a master. How many of the hired servants in my father's has plenty to eat? And me, I'm perishing here with hunger. I can't even eat what the pigs eat. It's not enough. He says, I will. Now we're engaging the will. That's good. We're getting, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then this last step makes it official. He arose and he came to his father. So he comes to himself and he has this moment. I don't belong here. This is way beneath my creation, my character. I'm not supposed to be in the pig pen. I'll tell you what I'll do. I will go back to my father. Because even as a hired servant in his house, I'll be better off there than I am here. No rationalizing, no excusing, no blaming. He's come to himself. That's, by the way, there's an aspect of that in repentance. It's a coming to oneself. It's a realization that I'm not where I'm supposed to be. In fact, I may know where I am, but it's not where I'm supposed to be. I'm lost. And furthermore, I'm going in the wrong direction. That's how I got here, the wrong direction. So I will change my mind about this thing I'm doing, this place I'm living, this life I'm living, and I will go home. There's the turning of the mind resulting in a turning of the direction and a coming home. He came to his father. He comes home. Father... He says, I 
Let me get that back in there. Greg, are we on the right page? Yeah. He arose and came to his father. You see that first word in this particular sentence, but? That's a wonderful word. If this had been any other kind of father, there would have been an and there. And his father let him have it. And his father said, who do you think you are? And his father said, get out of here. You're dead to me. I don't ever want to see or hear from you ever again. That there'd been an and. Because that's what he had coming, right? Oh, come on. Your kid runs off with a third of your life as if you were dead, blows it all on loose living, ends up in a pig pen hoping to get a little slop for supper and comes to himself. Well, good for you. So he cooks up this long speech and this great plan to get himself back in the good graces of his dad. And his father said, no way, buddy, I see right through it. You ain't welcome here. If it had been an and, that's what he would have heard. But it's a but, right? Because it's not what you expect. It's not what he's got coming. Jesus is turning this around and saying, hold on a minute. As the Pharisees are leaning into this story right now, and they are hoping the first word in this sentence is, and dad said, you're dead. Too late. You are a lost cause. Jesus brings in the word, but, to turn this whole conversation around. And what do we see? While he was still the son a long way off, his father saw him. How did he see him? What was he doing? He's looking for him, Mel. He's watching. He'd waited. He'd given up hope. This grieving dad still had some sense of hope that the son would someday come to himself and come back home. He's looking for him. There may have been a defensive element here because, like I said, this is scandalous. Maybe the villagers wouldn't take kindly to this smelly pig eating, uh, wait, pig eating with uh, son coming home after all he'd done. No way. So the dad sees him. And what did he feel? Anger? Resentment? Jealousy? Bitterness? Offense? No. What did he feel? Compassion. And that word comes from the gut. It's a deep feel. It's a... This is not an emotional mind thing. He's, something's welling up in this father he cannot contain. It's spilling out from deep within compassion and love and mercy and acceptance for his son who has come home. And he ran to him. Terribly undignified thing for a man of his stature and age to do. Didn't care what the neighbors thought, I guess. <laughs> He embraced him. And that word means to fall on his neck. Like, not again, this is not a, hey, son. This is not a high five, handshake, firm grip. This is not a bro hug, guys, with the space of two arms in between just in case, you know. This is not a side hug with a pat. What is this? If he fell on his neck, what do you do? This is a, he collapsed on the kid. He just wrapped his arms around this. I wonder if he took a bath on his way home. I met a man in one of my former churches. And because I'd grown up on a farm and we'd had pigs, 
When I shook his hand, he did not have to tell me what he did for a living. I kid you not. I love the man. He's a wonderful man. But when you work with pigs for a living, sorry, Calgon does not take it away. So you wonder, did the sun stop for a shower? I mean, did he, did he hose off? Did he jump in the creek? Did it matter? Hello? Where in this story does it say when the son had cleaned himself up, showered off, fixed his hair, you know, given a little time for the pores to clear, right? Gotten a new set of clothes, new set. When he was presentable, he came. What does it say? Is there anything in there about anything except this guy got right up out of the pig pen and ran home? Because dad is feeling something from deep within by way of compassion and love and mercy for his son, I don't think dad cared how he smelled. I don't think he cared. I don't know if he noticed. But I'll tell you this, it didn't stop him. Woo-hoo! Son, glad you're home. Let us pour you a bath. Let's get you a shower. No, what did he do? Immediately he runs to him. He falls on him. He hugs him. Big old hug. Big old bear hug. One of those kind he probably picked the kid up and cracked his back from top to bottom. You're like this. The kind that when somebody does that to you, you go, okay, okay. You're hurting me. Can't breathe. I can't help it. I just, I'm so glad you're home. And then he says to the servants, hey, get this kid some clean clothes. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Get him some sandals. This is a good day, boys. This is a good time. Because this son of mine, he was out. But he's come back in. Now the son starts the speech in verse 21. And the son said, And Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. True. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. True. True. Both true. Absolutely true. And again, there's a lovely word in the scriptures. Three letters, starts with a B, B-U-T. Not and, because if the word and had been there, it would have said, and the father agreed and expounded on the shame and the embarrassment and the cost of the son's disobedience. If it had been an and, he'd have let the son finish. In other words, the father would have said, yeah, and, what else you got to say? It says, but, what did the but mean? But the father interrupted the prepared speech of the son and said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Sonship. Bring the fatted calf. He's hungry because he's been in a pig pen. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. Here it is. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Isn't that good? That's good. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. It's not the point of the parable, but it is good. Now, let me pull us back to verse 1 and 2 again. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Who are we talking about? The son that was lost and found, dead, and alive, away, and home. He's a sinner. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Who are we talking about? Remember, this is a parable of a father who had 
two sons. Back to verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Didn't know why. He called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. He didn't know because he wasn't watching. He hadn't been looking. He had no expectation. He's glad he's gone. He better stay gone. No expectation of this kid's return. He's dead. The answer, he said to him, your brother, your brother has come. He's your brother. Relationships matter. And your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back home safe and sound. I'm sure the servant was smiling like, isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? Mm-mm. But he was angry and refused to go in. Wait, what? The good son, the faithful son, the obedient son is where? Where is he? If he refused to go in, where is he? Thank you. He's... He's out. He's out. He refused to go in. Who's in? That rotten little brother of his. Who's out? Faithful, obedient, persistently faithful big brother. Son of the father, the eldest. He was angry. He refused to go in. What does dad do? Oh, thank God. Look, his father came out and entreated him. Come on in, son. Please, join us. Your little brother's home. This is a cause for celebration. Come on in and join me in the celebration of the life of your younger brother, my youngest son. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat. Forget the fattened calf. I never even got a goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. There's all kind of wrong in that, y'all. I mean, that's just messed up. One, it's a works righteousness. I have served you. He sees himself as a servant, a slave, not a son. Doesn't see? He's He's lost sight of who he is, hasn't he? I never disobeyed. You never gave. I might celebrate with my friends, not with my father. But you didn't give me even a morsel to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, how easy it is to separate oneself when it's convenient. This son of yours came who's devoured your property. And he had with prostitutes. He did. He's right. But for him, you killed The fattened calf? Really? My goodness. I need to throw a bit of a warning in here, but I need to not have that warning on there until I do. So let me read you the text if I can. I don't know if I can. Let me tell you what happens. He refused to go in. Here's the warning. Hanging around the father's house does not necessarily mean you have the Father's heart. We are getting real close to the point of these three parables, folks. Hanging around the Father's house does not necessarily mean you have the Father's heart. Amen. A little drum beat for that. Remember again who we're talking about now in the older son. We're talking about unto the Pharisees and scribes who grumbled, saying he's receiving sinners and eats with them. That's exactly what 
The older brother is doing. It's exactly what he's doing. But his dad said to him, son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. That was true. Son had wasted his third. The older son, the older brother, he still had everything he'd had, probably more now. You still have it, son. So the father focuses on who he is, not what he's done, and what he has by virtue of who he is, all that is his. It was fitting. This is the right thing to do to celebrate and be glad, meaning that if you can't or you don't, you're wrong. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we know who the people are. We've walked through the parables. Let's finish with the point. And because you know preachers have to do everything in threes, I'm going to make the point in three points. Please pardon the preponderance of peas in this particular passage. Point number one, hey, this is good news. If you're out, come in. If you're a sinner or a tax collector in any way, shape, or form, or definition of any of those words or understanding of what it is to be away, welcome home. Come home. If you're out, come in. The door is open. The Father's not only just waiting for you to come home. You don't know this, maybe. I'm going to tell you, he's been looking for you this whole time, diligently. He's been after you. He is a pursuing God. Adam and Eve blow it literally royally in the garden. And what does God do? Adam, where are you? I mean, from the beginning, God is seeking Searching for, pursuing, coming after lost ones. What Jesus come to do? He said to seek and to save the lost. So good news, if you're out, come on in. There's a warm, godly bear hug waiting for you and a place set at the table and we're going to enjoy fellowship together for all of eternity. Come on in. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what you The door is open. Please, come in. This is good news. Secondly, if you're in, join in. That's good news. Celebrate the good news. Join in this activity of God in reaching out to and receiving in and rejoicing over the finished work of God in Christ on the cross for the sake of sinners who are coming by grace through faith to trust in Jesus for salvation. Celebrate that. That's good news. Or number three, if you can't, the good news is see number one. Because you might be out. You might, you might have the full appearance of inness. You may speak the language. You may know the posture. You may memorize the songs. You may understand the scriptures except for this. If you're trusting in your own self or your self-works or your self-righteousness for salvation, listen to me, works won't work. Repentance works because a way is a way. It doesn't matter in what direction. Hello? I mean, lost is lost. It doesn't matter where you're lost. It's just not where you're supposed to be. So you might have the full appearance of godliness and be absolutely and desperately lost in your heart. Because where you're supposed to be is in a relationship with God that you have through faith in Christ, by the grace of God in Christ. Salvation that comes only in Christ. It's good news. No matter how bad you are or how good you think you are, the same applies to all. None of us are worthy. None of us deserve it. None of us have goodness coming to us. But God in Christ has offered it to us all freely if we're willing to trust and receive Jesus. So all three points are good news. 
And all three points have the potential to turn your world upside down and your life around. If you're willing just to come to yourself and say, you know what, I can't do this on my own. So I'm going to give up on myself and my own self-righteousness and my own self-effort and I'm going to trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. You are God's son. You lived a sinless life. You died on a cruel cross. You were buried and raised again. That's good news to me because that means that even I can come in. So I will trust in you. I will turn from my sin and myself and my own way of doing things and I'll put my faith in you and I will follow you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me because I could never save myself. Now for some of us who are way out and for some of us who are really close, that same good news applies trust in Jesus. Father, that's our prayer, and I pray it on behalf of every person listening, either here in the room or online or in recordings that are played back later. No matter who we are, who we think we aren't, what we've done, what we haven't done, what we think your opinion of this of us is, or what the opinions of others are, that we'll come to understand that we're all outsiders. And through Christ, we've all been invited in the same door by grace, through faith. So I pray we'll all be willing to give up on ourselves, be it good or bad, and trust in you. And thank you for this turning around in our thinking. That hanging around the Father's house doesn't mean we have the Father's heart. But I pray, and on behalf of every person praying with me, I ask you to give me and us your heart and your vision and your mission, and find us faithful to join in that work and celebrate and rejoice with you when that work is accomplished, even in just one person, no matter who that person is, how good or how bad. Lord, find us faithful to rejoice in your salvation. And we lift our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 